Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Another two top today. We'll hear from the political economist Alfredo Saad Filo on the election in Brazil. And then we'll hear from a couple of artist activists, Mohamed Salome and Mina Kani, on the uprising in Iran. Brazil held a two-round presidential election in October. In the first round, on October 2nd, former President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, universally known as Lula, won 48% of the vote, beating the current president, Jair Bolsonaro, affectionately known as Bozo, by five percentage points. But since Lula fell short of the 50% of the vote required, a runoff between the top two candidates was held on October 29th. Lula, who was president from 2003 to 2010, beat Bolsonaro in the second round, but just barely. That's good news because Bolsonaro is a corrupt reactionary authoritarian of a deeply vile Trump-like sort, but the narrowness of the victory is disturbing. Why was Lula's victory so narrow? Why does a ghoul like Bolsonaro have such broad support? To address these questions, we're joined by Alfredo Sadfilo. He's a Brazilian political economist who teaches at King's College London. Alfredo Sadfilo. How relieved are you that uh, Lula won? I'm enormously relieved. The consequences of losing to Bolsonaro would have been uh, really tragic for democracy in Brazil. This was uh, not a normal election with two or perhaps more candidates who accept the basic rules of the game and are and have differences about implementation of particular policies. This was a fundamental dispute about the nature of democracy in Brazil, about the political regime, about the constitution. So I'm hugely relieved that Lula, who managed to put together this very, very broad anti-fascist front, was eventually able to win the elections against uh, Bolsonaro. But he did so by very little. It was a tiny 1.6% margin and 2 million votes. That was my next question. Why was it so narrow? I mean, we expected it to be narrow, I think, but um, it was even narrower than we expected. Apparently, Bolsonaro people lie to pollsters, but uh, why was it so narrow? You're correct. The opinion polls were wrong in the first round and wrong in the second round in exactly the same direction. They overestimated support for Lula and underestimated support for Bolsonaro. That was disturbing. Lula won both rounds, but he won by a tighter margin than was uh, expected uh, by his supporters and anticipated by the opinion polls. I think this fundamentally shows the uh, level and in, in extent of support for the far right uh, in Brazil. The situation is even more serious uh, than that from, from my personal point of view, because Bolsonaro is a terrible politician. He is not uh, someone who builds alliances, who brings people together, who can build coalitions of political parties, organizations and interests around himself. He's absolutely terrible at that. He hijacked a political party for his original election four years ago. He then abandoned that party soon after he became president. He tried to set up a new political organization for himself, but he could not get through the legal hurdles to launch this new political party uh, and then had no party for the vast majority of his term uh, in office uh, and then hijacked another political party uh, in order to become a candidate. So this, this is not a man who can build bridges and still he had 58 million votes. It is really scary. Uh, it is really scary to think what would have happened if there hadn't been a pandemic with a horrendous uh, public uh, policy response in Brazil. By contrast, um, Lula seems like a very skilled politician. Lula is one of the uh, most talented uh, politicians of our generation. He can only be compared, in my view, to uh, Nelson Mandela in terms of his uh, ability to bring people together, to build coalitions, to go over differences and bridge over those uh, differences. This election was a massive endorsement for Lula himself. Remember, just a few months ago, he had 26 legal cases against himself. He spent a year and a half in prison uh, under 
completely false uh, allegations and, and completely fake uh, cases, legal cases against him. He won against all of those cases. He came out of prison. He built this massive political coalition that included basically everybody from the center-right up to the extreme uh, left. All the establishment in Brazil was aligned with Lula. This takes an immense uh, amount of political talent. So that deserves our admiration. No one else could have put that coalition together and won this election, which is in itself also alarming. Remember, Lula just turned 77 years old and the center left uh, in Brazil has no one else. This is a very delicate situation for Brazilian democracy. No one else could have won this election against Jair Bolsonaro. Of course, a politician of the far right who tried to undermine the Constitution at every step of his four years in office. Now, what do you say sounds eirily familiar to an American? We have 77-year-old or 78-year-old Joe Biden, Trump on the margins with a really insane movement behind him. The parallels are are rather eerie. Absolutely. You're you're completely correct. The uh, joke that I make in terms of this uh, contrast is that Bolsonaro is very similar to Trump without the intelligence, the class, uh, and the politeness. Oh, my God. That's a dire indictment. He's a terrible man. From every point of view, yes. At least Trump can be funny now and then. I don't know if that <laughs> if you can say that about Bolsonaro. No, Bolsonaro is not funny. No, I can't think of him being funny. His people dominate the Congress, right? Uh, a substantial number of governorships, and obviously a very large portion of the Brazilian population is behind him. How do you explain that appeal? You are correct. The left um, has about 25% of seats in the Chamber of Deputies, uh, has about one-third of seats in the Senate and the, in principle, allies of uh, Bolsonaro, people who were elected uh, supporting him, have about 70% of governorships and 75% of Brazilian GDP. The political system in Brazil is extremely fragmented and very, very fluid. So a very large number of those uh, members of Congress and and governors have already signaled that they will work uh, with Lula. The Brazilian political system is mostly composed of opportunistic, unprincipled, and often predatory politicians. They are in for the money, uh, for the power, and they will do deals with almost anyone. So the problem for Lula is not specifically exactly how to start building a coalition that can have a majority in Congress. I'm certain that he can do that. The problem is to keep this coalition together. And the oil that keeps it together and that kept it together under Bolsonaro, also since Bolsonaro doesn't build uh, coalitions uh, very competently, it's, it's money. There has to be a distribution of money through the political channels to oil those connections and make sure that the political system functions. The Brazilian system is a presidential system, but it is one where Congress has an immense amount of power, and it is also decentralized with the state governors having a lot of power. Lula will have difficulty keeping those people on board. The way he managed to do it in his previous administrations between 2003 and 2010 was through the distribution of resources, but also in a context that was much more favorable. Brazil was riding the global commodity boom. The economy was growing. But at the moment, the global economy is in crisis and there's no clear engine for growth in Brazil. How Lula is going to play his cards in these very difficult circumstances, it's difficult to see. The additional complexity is that Brazil is now a much more polarized country than it was when Lula took office for the first time. There is now an absolutely overt, far-right, fascist opposition that managed to obtain 49% of the votes. A large part of that will dissolve uh, over time, but there will be a hard core there that will be intransigent and they are armed. This is something that Bolsonaro promoted. And these people are willing to go to the ultimate consequences. So Lula will have immense challenges as uh, the new president from the 1st of January, 2023. How do you explain the appeal of the far right to the broader population? The bigger picture 
is that Brazil is a reactionary uh, country, is a conservative country. And it's conservative across multiple dimensions, and they all casually, perhaps in a sense, got together under Bolsonaro. It is a conservative country because it still uh, struggles with the inheritance of slavery. Slavery in Brazil was abolished only towards the very end of the 19th century. It was one of the latest countries to abolish slavery. It is a profoundly racist society. And this type of society is by definition uh, exclusionary, by definition a society with an enormous load of discrimination embedded within the functioning of society itself. So society that is based on on repression uh, and police uh, violence and then a prominent role for the army uh, to keep order. is a society where social differences matter enormously. And those people did not like the fact that Lula was an outsider. Lula came from a very poor family. He never went to university in a country where university diploma is extremely important in terms of social uh, positioning. Lula speaks Portuguese with a particular accent, and uh, he speaks not grammatically correct Portuguese. And that also uh, led to uh, volleys of discrimination against him. So the social exclusion is, is a big thing. But the, the other aspect of this presence of the political right is ideological. The ideological right associated with Aus the Austrian school of thought increased uh, enormously in Brazil. And then you have a third wing, which is the evangelical churches. These are some big churches that are transnational corporations and are some very small corner churches, most of them uh, supporting Bolsonaro. Not all of them, but most of them supporting Bolsonaro. And they have an enormous grip over the faithful. And the bishops they instruct the faithful to vote, normally to vote for Bolsonaro in, in, in the strongest possible terms. Lula is the devil. I'm quoting, this is literal. Lula is the devil and you cannot possibly vote for the devil. It's at this level. What they want, ultimately, it's not even ideological. It's money. These churches, they control radio stations. They control TV stations. They have whole companies under their uh, control. And Bolsonaro pumped immense amount of resources into them. They're also involved in politics. They have about a third of Congress are affiliated to one or other of these uh, evangelical uh, churches. Now, they're divided on almost everything, well, mostly on the far right, but divided on almost everything. But one thing they all come together uh, is abortion. They're absolutely intransigently against abortion, which is something they've got in common with the Catholic Church. That blocks an extremely important area of debate that Lula is unable to touch. What is the uh, social base of the evangelicals? Is it broad or is it uh, concentrated in a particular demographic? By now, it is broad. Traditionally, it was poor people in uh, the urban peripheries, people who were looking for a more mystical experience than the Catholic Church was able to provide back since uh, the 1980s. Uh, that is when the evangelical churches started to grow. The Catholic Church in Brazil uh, at that point in time was very heavily influenced by liberation theology. In liberation theology, I think this is simplifying a lot, but I think liberation theology did not have the mysticism and the appeal that many of those people were looking for. Also, the evangelical churches, many of them, they follow uh, what we could call a theology of entrepreneurialism. It's a theology that promises that you will become rich in this world if you follow the dictates of the church and if you give a lot of money to the church. So you, you eventually find people who are very, very poor contributing an enormous uh, percentage of their meager incomes to the church as, as an investment strategy not only an investment strategy into the afterlife to get to heaven, but to obtain money in this life as proof of the blessings of God, turning those churches into huge machines. So there, there is this, this demographic there, but also increasingly up into the traditional middle classes and upper middle classes uh, through this, this, again, this kind of mystical experience, some kind of theological renewal and something to believe in in a society that is increasingly materialistic and where interpersonal bonds are highly dissolved and people see each other as economic rivals, faith gives people something to hold on to 
uh, in some kind of sense in lives that, to some extent, are uh, out of joint. I'm speaking with the Brazilian political economist Alfredo Sadfilo. What you describe, again, sounds very familiar to an American. Are these churches a, a, an import from the U.S., or did they get established uh, domestically? They had always existed in Brazil. They were just marginal. And then more or less suddenly in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, started to grow in an accelerated way, and they just never stopped growing. I'm sure that there will be uh, connections with U.S. churches, stroke enterprises of a similar nature. But I think broadly, these are domestic phenomena. That Brazil has also exported. There are many of these churches with huge followings in Lusophone Africa, but also in Nigeria and spreading around Europe uh, following the Brazilian diaspora. A figure like Bolsonaro and Trump, they're part of you know what's been called the Nationalist International. You've got Victor Orban, you now have Maloney uh, in Italy. How do you explain this broader phenomenon uh, around the world of, of very far-right and fascist and near-fascist uh, politics spreading so wildly? There is a crisis of political democracy uh, in the world today. Uh, and this led to the collapse first of a good chunk of the centre-left and some traditional social democratic and socialist parties, particularly in the European context. But then, and perhaps more dramatically even, the collapse of the centre-right and the far right absorbed that base of uh, support. Uh, I believe this is connected to the economic and social restructuring that was promoted under neoliberalism in one country after the other. Transnationalization of production, internationalization of capital, uh, deindustrialization that dissolved not only the economic base of many countries and replaced traditional jobs, careers, uh, entire professions disappeared uh, and were replaced by mostly precarious jobs with the old being squeezed out of the labor market and the young never finding a very stable foothold uh, there. So an uh, insecurity that uh, prevails across uh, society and a feeling for those traditional uh, social groups, the stereotypical white male, blue collar worker, in the case of the advanced economies, uh, especially feeling that they lost out on something and, and not through their own fault. They didn't do anything wrong. They were just dead living their lives and, and, and expecting uh, a stable job and a pension. And suddenly the entire firm closes down and all you see is manufactured goods produced in China or somewhere else in East Asia arriving in your country. And, and, and what is going on? And then you see an increasing uh, circulation of people and you see immigrants and you see different people everywhere. So it, it has to be the fault of the new. And then uh, some kind of illusion that the past holds the key to that. This in, in the context of uh, political institutions that became increasingly impermeable to the dramas of a common people that these people were living. Central banks that adopted an, ob an obsessive focus on inflation targeting, fiscal rules, particularly in Europe, that were extraordinarily rigid, and a whole neoliberal apparatus that could never be challenged. There was, it was simply impossible to change course in the economy. Now, when you exclude the economy from political discussion in a situation of dramatic economic insecurity rising for so many people, that political space will be occupied by something else. And it was occupied by discussions about nationalism, by religion, by racism. In this fermenting context, you have the rise of a political or, or new individuals and political organizations associated with them claiming to be coming from the outside and claiming the capacity to resolve those problems. Then we find people like Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro, a whole range of authoritarian neoliberal leaders that we find uh, in the world uh, today, who in reality cannot and do not want to, have no interest in resolving any of these problems, but they promote a politics of resentment and conflict that can keep them in office and can make them popular for a considerable period of time. I think this is a serious crisis of the political systems and the institutions of representation under neoliberalism. It plays out differently in, in, in different countries. But I don't think we're simply walking back from this crisis of democracy into the political stability that we had 10 or perhaps 20 years ago. 
Much of what you describe um, should be uh, fruitful ground for uh, a left, uh, but it's not. Uh, what's wrong with this? The left has been very heavily repressed and decomposed. Political systems are much more hostile against the left now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. The legal system is much more hostile, all the institutions of repression, but also people are exhausted by their daily uh, difficulties. I am, however, much more optimistic now than I was uh, even a few years ago. After the, I think what, what happened with Bernie Sanders was a massive success in terms of organization. The Black Lives Matter movement in the United States was massively influential uh, and successful in, in, in many ways in, in showing your organization uh, at the grassroots level. Uh, the movement in support of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, the political experiences of Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain and the Workers' Party in Brazil uh, itself. These are all successful experiences in the sense that they have produced lessons uh, for the left. They all ended in defeat, uh, of course, but we have lessons and we could see in each one of those experiences the depth of dissatisfaction with the neoliberal uh, world order and the potential for bringing those dissatisfied people together in a progressive direction. We're not there yet. We do not have those movements yet, but we're learning how to uh, bring people together in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. It's not a restoration of old-style political organizations. It's a process of discovering new types of organization and forms of political representation that would be adapted to the times in which we live today. Given the configuration of uh, the Congress and uh, the rest of the Brazilian state, uh, which is mostly against Lula, what can he accomplish? I think it would be extremely difficult. The most important priority is the preservation of the democratic political regime in Brazil. That has to be a fundamental uh, priority, and I'm, uh, I'm certain that Lula would be very attentive uh, to that. A second priority closely connected with that one is to dismantle the base of support of Jair Bolsonaro, to try and peel off support. Uh, but that would be very difficult to achieve if Lula is not able to deliver economic growth and job creation. The economic challenge is very significant, not just on itself, but also in terms of what it represents for the political challenge. Brazil is an urban country with more than 90% of the population living in urban areas. But the high productivity sector of the economy, the base of, of the exports of Brazil is in the countryside. It's, it's primary commodities that go all over the world, but China is Brazil's uh, biggest market. When you insert yourself into the international division of labor underneath China, you have a massive problem because China does have a strong state and, and very effective industrial policies, and Brazil does not. So I do not see how Brazil would be able to diversify its economy very significantly, having to compete against this massive rival. So the jobs that the PT, the Workers' Party governments, were able to create last time around between 2003 and 2016, and this will be the same challenge. Now, the jobs that they managed to create were low-paid urban jobs, precarious jobs. They created many millions of jobs, but they were not stable, high-productivity uh, manufacturing sector jobs. I don't see how they're going to do different this time. Of course, a job is better than no job, but Brazil has a very disaggregated, disintegrated uh, labor market in urban economies that are, with those jobs, low productivity uh, economies with this massively powerful countryside producing soya beans and, and oil and, and iron ore for export. It's difficult to keep political stability in those circumstances in this economy. And if the global economy is not favorable, as it's not likely to be for the next few months at least, then where is Lula going to find the resources to keep his base together to build infrastructure and to find the resources for his social programs that he's committed to? It will be very difficult. The pressures uh, to produce those agricultural exports that you described sound like bad news for the Amazon. <laughs> What's going to happen there? That is a, a, a serious challenge. I think Lula is aware of that. A significant part of his coalition uh, includes people who are uh, committed to the environment and environmental preservation. There's not an immediate 
need for the expansion of soya to imply the destruction of the Amazon in the sense that it's not directly the soya plantations that encroach into the forest. What encroaches into the forest is companies. Companies in the south of Brazil, particularly in Sao Paulo, that hire people to occupy land and then destroy the forest and then pass it on to whole chains of economic activities that will eventually end up with soya. But soya is not the driver of that. But notice that this is not, the devastation of the Amazon is not driven by independent family farmers, not at all. This is not what's happening. These are capitalist enterprises expanding the frontier and encroaching into the forest for the profit motive. And the people who do that on the ground are employees. They are not independent people appropriating land for themselves because they're coming from overpopulated areas. It's not at all that. So it is in principle possible to contain the devastation and and the PT administrations in the past were able to do that to a a significant extent. Now, the level of attention to Brazil might Uh, international attention to to this specific problem in Brazil might create incentives for the government to to be even more aggressive in preservation, which is a good thing and it has to be done. They don't need more land. Brazil and, and the soya areas are productive enough and there's enough space and scope there for technological improvements to to raise productivity and exportable quantities. It is possible to have better policies that can be successful. As Alfredo Sadfilo, Professor of Political Economy and International Development in the Department of International Development at King's College London. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Blinker. Paralyzed. Flat on my back. So our world is built an endeavour That every man is for himself Wealth is for the one that wants it Paradise If you can earn it History is the reason I'm washed up How some have paralyzed by the Gang of Four, the syndrome Alfredo diagnosed in Brazil anticipated four decades earlier in Thatcher's Britain. Next, Iran. On September 16th, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman named Masha Amini, also known as Gina Amini, died while in the custody of the country's morality police. She had been arrested for violating the compulsory hijab rule and, according to eyewitnesses, beaten by the cops. Within a month of the 1979 revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, then the country's supreme leader, decreed that all women would have to wear a headscarf in public because, as is the case with so many religious fundamentalists, women are seen as dangerous threats to public order morality and must be kept under wraps. Masha Amini violated this law and died for it. Her death set off a round of protests that are still going. Gender is absolutely central to this uprising, and women are at the forefront of the demonstrations. But there are other issues as well. To explore these, here are Minahani and Mohammed Salami. Mina Khani is a Berlin-based political theorist, activist, and artist. She is part of the Women's Life Freedom Collective, which organized the historic October 22nd demonstrations against the Islamic Republic of Iran in Berlin. Also based in Berlin, Mohammed Salome is a curator and artist. He is the co-founder and programmer of the New Center for Research and Practice. A content warning. I feel a reticence about being critical of the Iranian regime, as miserable as it is, given the long history of U.S. meddling in that country, most notably the 1953 coup that overthrew Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh for, among other grievous offenses, nationalizing British oil holdings. That coup was followed by decades of support for the oppressive Shah, who was overthrown in 1979. There are many political tendencies behind the anti-Shah movement that overthrew him, including secular leftists, but the post-revolutionary government was quickly dominated by religious fundamentalists led by Khomeini. Is that era now coming to an end? Will women, tired of misogyny and gender-based oppression, bring Iran into a new era? 
Here are Mina Khani and Mohammed Salome with some answers. Mina doesn't speak English very well, so Mo translates for her. I've included little snippets of her Farsi to remind you that the thoughts are mostly hers. Why did things explode right now? What uh, conjunction of events led to this um, uprising? Um, thank you for the question. Um, she thinks this is happening as soon and exactly at the time that it was possible for it to happen because the potential for something like that already existed. But we're reaching to this capital E event or historical moment that this can actually materially and factually happen. We got to understand that these new sets of mass demonstrations are happening in line with a series of other demonstrations and protests that were happening. And it now has culminated to the point that they can actually address the dictator for the first time and directly speak to the power. So basically, she's going to explain more in terms of the relation of gender to the state. So I'll just leave her to say that. The addressing of the dictator is something that has been going on in different protests since 2009, but now it has become a general discussion, a general topic, and a general understanding. It's not just specific to certain student groups or other groups. How do these demonstrations differ in their social composition? Is it different groups of people, different social classes from previous uh, demonstrations we've seen? In, uh, this is the first time that such demonstrations include many or all social groups, existing social groups, and includes them. This means they include them by bringing them to the street or bringing them generally to the public space, which these days also, in, this is my own words, includes like social media and internet and other places. If we can compare or be precise, in 2009, we were dealing with a middle class protest movement with particular electoral or political demands in terms of like they're asking for their vote. In that movement, what we had was at the very end of the 2009 movement, people started to address the dictatorship issues and speak to the dictator. But unfortunately, the leaders of the movement, which were basically demanding a recount or demanding election, were not able to join these people's demand. And they were put in house arrest. And basically, these questions disappeared again. The reformist leaders of the past uprising were not able to fulfill the demands of the, the people. And what happened was, if the 2009 was mostly about middle class crowds, the later demonstrations began to be inspired by more oppressed layers of society, whether they were workers or they were unemployed. But also you got to understand the gender gap or the gender division began to be more and more highlighted. And the, the campaign for the removal of hijab started to like really resonate with the younger generation and sort of like became the forefront. In subsequent demonstrations, we see how the economic issues that were basically highlight, highlighted joined this addressing of the issue of dictatorship and became more and more political rather than just economic. And then at the same time, we have the phenomenon of the Daughters of the Revolution, which was a movement to basically go to the street and remove your hijab and basically demand this type of personal freedom. When you see like the political economic demands that were also beginning to address the question of dictatorship and then these type of like feminist movements and gender issues that also were coming to realize that the question of state and politics and the dictatorship is the most important one, they kind of join in with other types of strikes and other type of activities that were happening across the country. Obviously, the gender angle is very, very important here. But uh, how does that articulate with other uh, discontents, with other non-feminist issues? One of Mina's major sort of contributions to the, to the sort of like the historical development under Islamic Republic is that the Islamic Republic has been able to capitalize and expand 
the, the already existing social divisions that were there prior to Islamic Republic, they were there historically or organically. The ethnic divisions, the gender division, the religious division, the cultural divisions, right? The Islamic Republic actually invested in deepening these divisions in order to sort of like establish its power. But what happened is these divisions, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a, as they divided and as they separated, the last five years, we've seen a kind of convergence happening. But because of the proactive feminist movement to challenge hijab, which became an everyday thing in Iran, younger people every day at this corner or that corner, that city began to challenge the hijab, caused a kind of like a particular type of repression from the state against this that then made this a very political issue and made this sort of like a focal point right now. This gender division became a focal point because if you look historically, the Islamic Republic, the first thing they invested on was to send women home. Women lost the ability to control their labor. And this is something that the Islamic Republic has invested in for, for, for the longest time. This, this gender division is not new. But what has happened is like with the rise of education, and I, I'm adding some of my own words to, to Mina's because I think, I think it's complimentary, right? We're having this sort of like a marginalized women, mostly from lower classes, have joined together. And like, it's not like it, that only a slogan is about women. Women are actually at the forefront of these public demonstrations. They're at the forefront. They're fighting the war with the state. So this is sort of like the, the makeup of it. But that's why we shouldn't really look at the feminist issue separate from the economic issue. Why? Because women were the first economic victims of Islamic Republic from 1979. And hijab was both the symbolic and the actual tool that sent them home and disempowered them and took away their ability to control their their labor and also, you can say, capital. Let me ask again a question I, I asked earlier. The, the repression of women has been in place for over 40 years, the hijab and the rest of it. Why, after 40 years of this, is this suddenly becoming such a foreground issue or has the discontent been building and we in the West just didn't notice it? Women began to protest hijab right off the bat, a couple of weeks after the revolution, they realized that this is coming. And it was a political protest. But what happened was, especially during the Iran-Iraq war, where the, reg- where the legislation for the hijab became legal, the protest and the struggle became a civil disobedience issue rather than a political issue. And women found different ways to challenge it through their dress code, through the way they dress and all that. And then now what we see is with the Daughters of Revolution movement that started a couple of years ago, the question became political again, right? And then to add my own two cents to it is that what we see precisely causing this is like in the last presidential election, and I hope Mina, Mina, Mina can disagree with me, it's fine. In the last presidential election, what happened was they eliminated the possibility of even any kind of like half-assed reformer running. The state became like one-handed, right? And then the new president, Raisi, one of the first things he did was to like tighten the hijab rules to fight this transformation of a civil disobedient movement into a political movement. And to stop it, they double down on the enforcement of the hijab laws. And that's why this is happening right now in a way. This is contributing to it. As the women's focus on challenging hijab became more and more political, the state's offensive was to not only, as I said, enforce the laws, but actually inventing new types of criminality around the women's dress code to tighten the, the rule. And that's really what's causing this doubling down and the new forms of criminalization is causing people to come out. And the, and the, and the killing of Mahsa, it's basically the sparkle of the explosion that has like one aspect of it goes 40 years, one aspect of it goes 20 years, one aspect of it goes like in the last five years, right? And then just became this like point of explosion. How much do women participate in public life? Are they free to be educated, uh, to work? I guess they can't really hold political office, but uh, what about um, the, the ability of women to lead public lives otherwise? Even though Iranian women have tried their best individually and collectively to enter the spaces of higher education, and even though at the university, and the state always parade this data, right, 50% of University students are women, but when you look at the job market, only 18% of them are able to work. So this gap itself 
is one of the causes of discontent. And you know, this gap is a class issue because wealthy women do not have to work, just like America. This is a this is mostly a middle class and and sort of like a working class question. People on the left sometimes argue that the hijab is the problem of the middle class Iranian woman and not the lower class is nothing but a big lie or a big misunderstanding. Why? Because in Iran, we cannot really claim to have any category such as the Iranian woman middle class. Because in Iranian society, every woman has to have a male custodian to deal with their question of work, capital, land ownership, home ownership, and all sorts of stuff. So we can't really talk about any kind of autonomous womanness because you're always dealing with a custodian, which is either your father or your brother or your uncle or your husband. That was the voice of Mohammed Salome. I'm speaking with him and Mina Kani about the uprising in Iran. Because of this type of like very like demented relation, what people consider the female Iranian middle class is doubly exploited by the male component of the middle class. So it's a double kind of like thing by not having agency over their rights and how these rights have been slowly but surely one by one erased. The erasure of the women's rights from 1979 forward has kind of created this situation for Iranian women that even within the middle class, they're exploited by the middle class. This is highlighted in a very early speeches by Khomeini, where he says the presence of women in the social, social world, but particularly at work, has polluted these environments. And that's why women have to cover their body and face as much as possible to basically prevent this type of pollution. This is why women belonging to lower classes confront the issue of hijab much more intensely than women who are in the upper layers of the society. Gina Amini or Mahsa Amini was a lower class, poor Kurdish woman traveling to Tehran with her brother. And when she was arrested, the brother says, we are strangers in this city. Please let us go. We don't even know what's going on. The reason why Mahsa or Gina, this Kurdish woman, was murdered was because she resisted. She physically resisted her own arrest. This is something that doesn't happen with the women of higher class because they would just quietly get their ticket and listen to the religious speech about how hijab is good and go home. But she physically resisted and then she was murdered. And this resonated with women from all sorts of social backgrounds because they could identify with this position. And this is what enraged them and got them to the street because they realized that like this kind of resistance and this type of like physical resistance against hijab is really necessary. And this became very important focal point that people realized that the hijab is such an important pillar of holding up the system that with its erasure, the entire the entire regime would fall apart. She's going to point out to another one of these pillars, which is anti-Americanism and anti-imperialism, but I would just let her to reiterate that when your question comes up. How are men reacting to this? We can't deny the fact that Iranian society is a patriarchal society. And as we discussed earlier, Islamic Republic has invested on deepening the division between men and women by enforcing the power of men both socially and also in the household. But at the same time, we are seeing that when women are screaming women life freedom on the street, it's also men that are being murdered by the state repression. This is the first time in Iranian history that not just women, but the queer movement, the youth, have also joined the struggle and not only joining the struggle as sort of passively but putting their issues on the table and making their issues political and demanding a kind of like respond to that and it's not just gay and lesbians and queers trans issues is also very highlighted in this struggle it's for the first time that we see that men are able to not just listen but understand the in, the integralness of all these other struggles to the larger question of politics and incorporate it and basically go out there to fight on behalf of collectively everyone is fighting on behalf of these issues that stem from women's rights and women's demands but extend into 
gay, lesbian, queer, trans, supported and, and basically helped by men. We should not romanticize this moment because misogynistic slogans also are being used by men and some sexist men are also part of this movement. But what's important is that the space that has opened is allowed the progressive, mostly leftist groups to basically join in and try to divert and avoid those wrong and old school aspects of, of slogans and protests and kind of like move it more towards progressive issues and that stems from the left. The role of feminists in this struggle is very highlighted. Why? Because they're successfully able to connect the kind of state patriarchy and state sexism to social patriarchy and social sexism, even to individual, like sort of like household patriarchy and household sexism, bring all this together, but also like turn it into like some kind of like a general political demand that's then even supported by progressive men. Younger generation Iranians are more and more part of that. How much of this is a, a sign of generational change? It is very crucial to realize that the generational the generational gap plays a major role in this upheaval revolution, but we should not be obsessed about thinking of it as the only or the most important one. So we have to realize that what the younger generations are doing is in the context and related to the struggles of the past. And if I can add my few words to it is that the role of the past generations is to pass on their experience and also the historical consciousness of what has taken place, pass it on to the young generation. So, so you can't really think that young generation independently came up with, with the ways of fighting, with their slogans, with their demands, because the older generation's job has been to basically pass on their experience of what failed in terms of protest and struggle, but also what happened in the past that necessitates a kind of action and consciousness that's needed right now. We cannot forget the fact that young Iranians are very involved in social media. As a result of the internet, they speak much better English and much more English than the past generations. And this has allowed them to have a much better understanding of like, the outside world and where the, the global struggles are situated. And that's where like the queer question becomes very important because they see how the queer struggle, the feminist struggle unfolds globally, right? And At the same time, these new awarenesses allows them to have a much better interpretation of these experiences and historical consciousness that they're inheriting from the past generations. Let's return to a point you brought up earlier and then develop it, the role of anti-Americanism. I'm concerned, you know, as an American uh, with not wanting to feed into the CIA's war in Iran, which goes back a long, long way. So how is the best way for us as Americans to think about this and to approach it? The most important thing to discuss in relation to your question is that Americans, but particularly progressive Americans, have to realize that they cannot project their antagonism and problem they have with their own state and its imperialistic nature onto this particular struggle that's unfolding in Iran. Our people have a particular relationship to the question of the United States, particularly after the 1979 revolution and the establishment of the Islamic Republic. Iranian state cleverly by staging the capture of the American embassy and inventing its own Islamic form of anti-imperialism disarmed the question of anti-imperialism from the hand of the leftists and the communists and the socialists and sort of made it its own and made it impossible, at least within Iran, but then growingly in the region, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, to have any other kind of anti-imperialist thought or practice outside of this newly invented form by the Islamic Republic policymakers. As a child, prior to the development of your historical consciousness, and Mina herself experienced that in Iran, the Iranian state forced you to hate this entity like United States, to burn its flag, and to walk on its flag, even before you even know where is America and what is America. This attitude and this barrier set by the Islamic Republic consciously has made it impossible for the Iranian 
society, not the state, but Iranian people and Iranian society have any kind of independent relation to American society and American people and culture outside of this sort of like space created by the, this antagonistic space created by the Islamic Republic. This type of Islamic anti-imperialism that was invented by the Islamic Republic is as crucial as hijab to the existence of the entire system. The day that the American embassy opens in Iran and the day that the hijab, the, the enforced hijab is taken away is the day that the Islamic Republic will disappear. Mo, you told me a couple of weeks ago that you've never been so optimistic about the possibilities for serious political change in Iran. Mina, any thoughts on how vulnerable the regime is right now? Mina thinks that this is the most vulnerable position the Islamic Republic has been in since its inception because most social groups, except the very pious people and the supporters of the regime, are on the street protesting. The protests are not only in big cities. They're happening in every big, medium, and small town in a way that it really becomes hard to coordinate a kind of like uh, suppression of them in a way they were able to do in other sets of demonstrations. Because of sanctions, and you know, I'm, and I add this myself, thanks to sanction, the Islamic Republic is in its most vulnerable position economically, and the Russian war with Ukraine has also drained Iran from, or, or has dispossessed Iran from the kind of support it might be able to normally receive from Russia, because Russia's too busy fighting Ukraine over there. So all of this adds to this vulnerability. The Islamic Republic has lost its social base. It claims to have it, but it actually more and more it doesn't have it as it's reflected in the way that its previous supporters are appearing on social media and condemning its actions on the street. Those are Mina Hani and Mohammed Salome, both Iranians based in Berlin. Mina Hani is a political theorist, activist, and artist, and Mohammed Salome is a curator and artist. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. In the spirit of non-debased anti-Americanism, let's go out with this, some of I'm Afraid of Americans, performed by David Bowie and Sonic Youth from a 1997 concert celebrating his 50th birthday. Till next week, bye.